First of all, credit, credit unions do not want to be engaged in any kind of uh, uh, illegal activity. That's not what we're founded for. That's not our mission. And we want to do our part, and we realize there's a role for us to play. Um, uh, you know, what, what, what we want regulators, to, you know, when you, when you do a risk-based uh, approach, I mean, that, that means there is some risk involved, but you're going to manage it. And, and if, you can, if, if they can learn that you can manage that in an appropriate way, uh, you know, we can all be better served. Uh, in this edition of AML Conversations, we speak to Andy Price from the World Council of Credit Unions, an interesting organization that not only deals with the regulatory challenges of AML and CTF globally, but works extremely hard in supporting financial markets in growing economies and dealing with the uh, issue that we've come to know as financial inclusion. We speak to Andy about both the mission of the association, of the, uh, the work that they've been able to do for quite a long period of time, but also what are the challenges of financial institutions that are particularly small, in many cases smaller than community banks, dealing with the regulatory oversight either in the United States or other countries that require there be risk assessment, risk mitigation, and reporting of suspicious activities. We think you're going to find this particular angle dealing with how credit unions navigate AML an interesting both conversation and learning experience. Enjoy AML Conversations. So Andy, the um the, the thing that interests me the most about what you folks are doing, number one, financial inclusion is a key component, not just on your website, but in your, in your portfolio, which is uh, so, so important. Um, I do remember one of the first meetings that we had, we had at the World Bank, we brought in all sorts of uh, representatives that were struggling with getting access. So that day we had money service businesses, we had correspondent banks, and we had humanitarian groups, and we decided that we can't boil the ocean. We're not going to be able to figure all this out. So there was a general uh, consensus that let's focus on humanitarian aid and issues with conflict zones and other issues so that they could get the, uh, the economic support they needed. And one of the things that really drove my view on this was we had one of the representatives, it was I think it was a Syrian relief organization. So it was a gentleman that represented that. And he stood up and he said, and he's talking about financial institutions in general, so credit unions would be part of this. And he, and he said, um, while it's important that we get access, it's also important that the process not be unfairly hindered. And he said an example of that would be many times we need to get money to certain locations for medical supplies, food, electricity, and we're getting that from some of these institutions, but the obstacles, in his view, that they put in place that make it harder to get from point A to point B, it's taking longer. He basically said, so we're getting it, but we're not getting it in time and people die. So that really resonated with me. Again, this is a comment from a couple of years ago. So you've done some work, a lot of work, in conflict areas. Um, what, what is the biggest hindrance that you have seen? The hindrance that, big picture, that, that I would put on the table is financial institutions are just fearful of regulatory criticism. So as a result, and in some cases, the business lines say, you know what, we don't mind doing that kind of business, 
but it's not a big revenue generator, so why would we put ourselves out? How do you deal with all of that, especially since you're representing smaller institutions, these credit unions that are obviously important, but, uh, yeah, but, but also um, so much smaller than probably even a, a community bank. How do, you, how do you take all of that and come up with a plan so that we can get money to these conflict areas, get money to people that need it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and, and, and so you ask kind of what, what are the barriers there? Uh, you know, the, uh, not only the AML, CFT, uh, you know, compliance requirements that you've got to do for account opening uh, and, and ongoing monitoring and, and the whole world that goes with that is an issue. But one of the issues you touched on is, you know, getting the money there and access to correspondent banks, which is how you access the payment system, how you can get uh, a relationship with the bank for liquidity. I mean, for all kinds of services that you, uh, a small institution really relies on another uh, uh, banking, getting your payments processed through to another country. Uh, one of, uh, uh, the, the international associations are very concerned with this too. The report came out showing the number of correspondent relationships uh, uh, declining, and, and uh, you alluded to this. It, it's really one of the hindrances to being able to provide uh, uh, services in those areas because if, if you can't hook into the financial system, you can't move money around, right. uh, everything falls apart. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the international agencies are starting to deal with this. FATF has put out guidance on what the responsibilities are with a correspondent bank and another institution and defining what those roles are. And, you know, they've clarified, hey, you don't have to do due diligence on all of the institution that you're dealing with. Their customers are their members. Let, the, let that credit union do that. Do your due diligence on that particular credit union or bank. Uh, and there's there's the Wolfsburg questionnaire out mm -hmm. there that uh, people are are starting to get a lot of acceptance now ha has a lot of acceptance uh, to help you uh, kind of troubleshoot those red flags, which is very helpful. Uh, yet e even with all of these things coming out, we're still seeing a decline, and and a lot of that comes down to your national level regulators being fearful of something coming through. Right. They still over enforce uh, uh, some of these regulations. Um, uh, so it becomes a huge challenge for small uh, institutions. The, the way that we do it with credit unions is a lot of times we try to get them to pull resources together. If they can use uh, a CUSO, credit union service organization, or if they can make networks among themselves. We're seeing some efforts with that in the Caribbean where there's uh, notorious for money laundering in the Caribbean. Sure. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of credit unions there who... Uh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think are engaged in, in, in this type of business. They're really too small um, uh, to be, although they could be. Um, uh, they're doing their job with anti-money laundering, but they're having real difficulties getting access to correspondent banks, and things for like you know processing credit cards and whatnot. And so what happens is they're forced to go to second-tier, third-tier bank where the, the services are way more expensive and the, the AML requirements are extremely onerous uh, in those circumstances. So... Uh, uh, more needs to be done with direction from the international regulators to national regulators to say, uh, look, you know, uh, nobody wants to launder money. You need to do your job, but let's let's do it in a way that makes sense, particularly for uh, institutions that are smaller and may not need to do uh, as much as some of these larger banks. You know, the the other thing that you've got to grapple with with that um, point of view, which I, I don't disagree with is, but I, I've heard the regulators say this, in some cases, large institutions have exited relationships with high-risk customers, and those customers 
have found their way into smaller institutions. And so then the regulators say to the small institutions, we don't think you have the capability of managing these entities because you're not really used to it. So prove it to us that you can. So my educated guess would be you'd have a similar challenge in, in your world, maybe even more so because of the nature of credit unions, that if a high-risk customer comes to one of your, or you you pursue the high-risk, whatever it might be, that the regulator is going to say, we need, we need to know that you have super strong controls, you have the right people enroll and all of that. So if, if I'm calling you up and saying, Andy, what do I do? What are your recommendations to me as a credit union official to make sure that I pass that regulatory muster, whether in the States or someplace yeah. else? Yeah, it's a, therein is the challenge. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the issue. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say, you know, uh, I mean, certainly a credit union could be used to launder money and, and, and probably has in some certain, certain, certain circumstances, you know, but, but um, a lot of times an individual credit union is, I mean, never going to be a target. I mean, they're so small. I mean, uh, it, you know, if somebody came in with, uh, you know, a ten thousand dollar deposit. Not only would it skew their balance sheet, right, right. <laughs> they, they wouldn't know what to do with it in the first place. I don't think, uh, you, you, you know, which, uh, and, and you, I mean, you're just not going to see that volume that that right. a, a real money launderer would want to put uh, through that institution. It's just not going to be a viable target. I mean, so in those circumstances, you kind of got to talk to the regular and say, look, I, you know, okay. Uh, it, it, some, someone who's you know a small-time drug dealer might run a little bit through here, but you're never going to see uh, something that's going to be a uh, you know a, a Colombian cartel putting their money through your institution. It, I mean, they they go to other banks to do that, or, or wherever else they go to do it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but I think the issue you highlight is is that's where we see the regulators who oftentimes get uh, overprotective of wanting to stop, not being the regulator that lets right. something through uh, versus letting the regulations, you know, be the right size that they need to be for that particular institution. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. When you work with FATF and other international organizations, what my, one of my quibbles, and I, and I think FATF does an amazing amount of work, I think it's a very narrow uh, criticism, but one of the things I can recall about their characterization of de-risking is that they would make these blanket statements that banks were exiting wholesale categories of customers. I personally don't believe that's true. I think they have been exiting or not onboarding certain customers because of what we just talked about. Yep. But I think because FATF is predominated, predominated by regulators who are yes. part of that, they, don't, they say, it's not us, it's you guys. And it's a little pox on both houses. And, and so when you have these conversations, because you have the scan again, you have the same issues that the banks have, um, the exact same issues that you, you need to let. If we're going to believe in a risk-based approach that they always talk about, yeah. then I should be able to say I'm going to spend X amount of time on this customer and Y on this customer. At the end of the day, we can manage all this. Yeah. So, um, with your interactions with FATF, do they look at you folks differently than they do? Uh, traditional banks. I mean, again, the scope. Uh, you're like a small community bank, so you're fairly similar. I mean, I know there's membership and all of the structures right, right. different, but not really. You're making loans. You have checking accounts. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I, and I agree with your comment yeah. about fat, and they do wonderful work, and absolutely I mean, have done so much, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, to have proper regulation. There, there's kind of two things that go on there. Yeah, a, a lot of times they're they're ignorant to what a credit union is. I mean, in the United States, we have an enormous system there, but you, uh, you know, they're the largest, followed by Canada, Australia, then Poland, Ireland. Then you get to the rest of the world and. The systems aren't so big, so a lot of times they're just unaware of, of what we are and how we operate. Uh, uh, so there's there's it, there's there's uh, I mean uh, it's it's just a lack of awareness of of that. Um, but also we're small, and so we're not really given the attention right. uh, that we need. E even though I would argue, you know, hey, hey, we're serving a lot of members that the banks aren't serving. You really there's a, there's a role for us out there. You really need to pay attention to it. Uh, uh, but we often get uh, overlooked on that. Uh, the second thing that I see uh, is a lot of times the international standard setting bodies, you know, I mean, FATF will say, look, I've done what I can in this right. regard, but they don't realize that they really need to do more with communicating down at the national level regulators and having more, a dialogue, more of a dialogue with them saying, okay, I passed this up here. Here's, here's how you need to implement it. They kind of just take a hands off. We, we've done our job. And then it's just left to the national level regulators who often, uh, um, again, we face either, you know, lack of knowledge or they want to be over conservative. And, and they look at some of the international standards as the go that's the gold standard, so I'm going to adopt it without properly tailoring it down. So, I mean, those kind of three things uh, makes kind of the perfect storm for uh, the situation that we're in where there's a lot of regulatory burden without really the... Uh, uh, corresponding appropriate risk and tailoring that needs to go on. The, um, the issue that still resonates uh, 18 years after 9-11 is um, terrorist financing, right? Yeah. And as we both know, the 9-11 Commission made very clear that the dollar amounts used in those attacks were fairly minimal. Correct. And so even today, whether you're talking about foreign fighters, whether you're talking about um, uh, a separate uh, a project that I'm working on with uh, the theft of art and culture antiquities and how the value of those gets used by terrorists, whatever. How do you train uh, credit union officials to look for transactional abnormalities, transactional activity that could be indicative of terrorist financing. Now, in the banks, same. I assume they're fairly, the red flags may be exactly the same. But obviously, in this case, to your earlier point, you can't have terrorist financing in a credit union because there's a low dollar amount. So you could have somebody, now you have to do a little more planning that you want to be a member and all that sort of thing. It's not probably not as simple as walking into a bank and getting through the onboarding process. But what sort of training in general do you at the council and with your sister organizations do regarding things like terrorist financing, which could be, and the reason you want to explain that to me, it seems, is then you could say to your regulators, look, we're small, but we're doing this sort of training. So we feel pretty good that we are, we're not perfect, but we're managing potential risks. So with terrorist financing specifically, what, what sort of either red flags or training parameters do you put in place? Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, uh, you'll, you'll find different levels of sophistication around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, uh, you know, CUNA does, I mean, you go on their website, there's a million and one uh, different, they got certification courses and sure. all, all kinds of things. 
Um, uh, a lot is done at the national level with our associations for their members. I mean, and particularly those that have, uh, you know, self-regulatory organizations, there's, there's just a ton of work. Mm -hmm. The advantage that we have in the credit union system is that we're, we're member-owned. Uh, and a lot of times they're serving a particular uh, trade or industry. Mm -hmm. And the, the people coming in uh, you know, already have some sort of relationship or familiarity there, right. which is which I think gives us a, a leg up right. on 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 our on our counterpart banks. Uh, uh, I, I was in a, a conference in, in Nigeria that was a conference of regulators from around. Uh, and I won't point out the regulator that said this, but uh, was a pretty high level ranking official. Uh, you know, who um, we had all kinds of topics banking related and AML was one of them. And one of them said, what is this AML and what do we have to do? And I was like, oh, my goodness, did, did she really just ask that? And, uh, you know, but then, then you realize that the system that they have here there was, I, I, mean, I think it was maybe 10 million in assets with several hundred credit unions. And you realize they're too small for, I mean, if, if sure. they get a $100 check, that's, you know, probably a big deal for the, so, I mean, you, I mean, you kind of, you kind of realize, and you, so you realize there's probably not a lot of training going on in that particular country, but most of our systems where we see, uh, see the, the system developing and growing, uh, you see a lot of the associations starting to do a lot of training uh, uh, for the requirements. Uh, a lot of the regulators even themselves uh, do, do wonderful right. uh, jobs with that, right, and rightfully so. I think it's a good role for NCUA here does uh, a lot of that as well for uh, uh, credit unions as well. Uh, uh, so we see it coming down through the associations and whatnot. Uh, but like I say, the advantage for credit unions is you know, being member-owned, uh, I think, gives us a, a huge leg up on being able to identify Hey, we have some something out of the ordinary here. Besides all that we've talked about, what um, what issues or what points would you want to make to the broader AML community regarding uh, the credit unions and the council um, that we haven't talked about? You know, obviously the inclusion issue, I think, is pretty understandable yeah. from based on the things that you and I have just uh, referenced. Um, I, I know that you were recently involved in a meeting in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, because correspondent banks are also considered high risk and they're struggling. We know that. So what additional things should folks be aware of uh, that perhaps they're not about this this major challenge that you, that you folks have been involved in for such a long time? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I mean, first of all, credit, credit unions do not want to be engaged in any kind of uh, uh, illegal activity. That's not what we're founded for. That's not our mission. And we want to do our part. And we realize there's a role for us to play. Um, uh, you know what? What? What we want regulators. To, you know, when you when you do a risk-based uh, approach, I mean that, that means there is some risk involved, but you're going to manage it. And and if you can, if if they can learn that you can manage that in an appropriate way, uh, you know we can all be better served. Uh, the the other thing that is a huge um, issue for, I, and I think this is true for all banks, is information sharing. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly, uh, you know, the, the other thing that's sneaking up on us out there are the privacy laws are actually hindering us from uh, all of us. Law enforcement and, and sharing information cross-border is extremely difficult now. GDPR out there, uh, um, uh, the, the ability to information share, I think, will all help us do a better job. If law enforcement does a better job of telling us what they're looking for, we can spend our time working on what they want to as opposed to just filing paperwork and 
uh, and forms and, and you know, going through exam, doing all this stuff. Let's, let's all get focused on what we need to focus on. Information sharing, I think, is another area that uh, still needs a tremendous amount of work. And, and I know it's a big priority for a lot of the, the, the uh, uh, regulatory bodies as well. You know, it's interesting that we end on that note because that's something we, uh, uh, AML Right Source, we had a, a symposium yeah. with our clients a couple of weeks ago here in town. And one of the things that they talked about is something that I certainly, and I'm sure you do understand as well, that the Bank Secrecy Act was created for one purpose, to get information in the hands of law enforcement as quickly as possible. Yes. It was not designed to do a lot of these checkbox oversight by regulators. It wasn't designed to argue with a particular credit union or bank, you didn't file a SAR on this transaction or that transaction. Right. Right. So I think we need to get away from that. And I know there's been a lot of conversation here and in, uh, frankly, with FATF about the importance of, um, again, as we mentioned, risk-based, uh, private-public partnership, sharing information. I do I agree with you 100% that the uh, privacy rules become challenging. Not that there shouldn't be strong privacy rules, but at the end of the day, if a credit union needs to, to file a suspicious activity report or a suspicious transaction report, um, they need to be protected for doing that, and they also uh, not shouldn't have anybody looking over their shoulder that, wait a second, you didn't add this to a narrative or that to a narrative. Right. Right, or even more importantly, I, I mean, when the context of I'm getting a wire from another institution and it, it stinks to high heaven and I want to call them and, hey, let's see if we can figure this out. You have a piece of the information. I have a piece. It, it, a lot of these things can be pieced together really quickly, and then we can be on the phone with law enforcement and say, hey, you need to look at this, or uh, it, the system would work a lot better, more efficiently for everybody. Uh, let me end, end on this. Uh, the biggest challenge in all these development uh, arrangements that you have around the world is what? In terms of, obviously, it's funding and making sure what you're doing is successful. What's the biggest challenge? All the things that uh, your council is working on. You mentioned Ukraine, and obviously you're doing other things around the world. What's the biggest challenge to completing those projects? Uh, yeah, um, you have to put anti-money laundering as one of the biggest hurdles, uh, you know, f figuring out how you're going to serve somebody. Uh, I mean, the example, in, we're in Colombia helping displaced refugees from Venezuela come over, uh, you know, figuring out how to open an account for them where they're, they're fleeing uh, a, a dangerous situation and maybe don't have identity, ID or a, a government-issued ID or, uh, uh, you know, trying to open an account for them. They don't have an address. I mean, these are all things that are right. standard check-the-box requirements under BSA. Uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, having a framework where you can have some flexibility under those circumstances is, is probably one of the biggest challenges. How can we get services there? How can we get access to a correspondent bank that'll even want to deal with us in that circumstance? Uh, are, are probably the biggest hurdles that we see. So uh, information sharing and flexibility sounds like those yes. are, are key elements. Key elements. Uh, Andy, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it, and really appreciate the work that the council's doing. Uh, hopefully, uh, those that are listening to us can go on your site and take a look at some of the things that your guys are engaged in. Anytime we can help access to financial resources around the world and here as well, it becomes pretty important. Oh, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. I want to thank Andy Price for sitting down and talking about the World Council of Credit Unions really fascinating work that's being done and actually being done for quite a long period of time. 
they are part of the Credit Union National Association, but they're a separate entity. More information can be found on their website. You can actually donate uh, to the World Council and perhaps get involved in some of their projects in some fashion. They uh, provide a lot of interesting reports and information. And I think this is just another example of how the AML community works far beyond regulatory and legal compliance. So I really enjoyed hearing about this organization and hope you did too. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations, and we will talk to you next time.